Well, indeed, good morning. I'm Pastor Michael, and today we continue our track toward our Easter celebration next week. Over these weeks, we're being challenged to rethink Easter. Last week, we said that Easter is more than baskets and bunnies. This week, I would remind us it's more than a new dress or a fine suit. It's more than a lavish family meal on Sunday afternoon. We know those truths inside these four walls, but do our friends, do our neighbors, do some of our family members really know that? Perhaps this Easter season, it is your role to help them rethink Easter. As we're rethinking Easter and helping others do the same, I want our thinking about Easter to be shaped by three words. Hope, sacrifice, forgiveness. Last week we said that humanity desperately needs hope. Really eternal hope to make it through this earthly life. And so today we add to that thought by anchoring eternal hope in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 verse 19, we heard the priest ask John the Baptist last week, Who are you? They were hopeful, you see. They were hopeful that He was the long-awaited Messiah who would rescue Israel. He told them He was not, nor was He a resurrected prophet. But He did make clear to those who inquired that He had come to bring true hope to God's people. And He instructs them that that hope that they desire is rooted in God's loving sacrifice for His people. And that's the word that I want us to focus on this morning as we rethink Easter. Sacrifice. Sacrifice as seen in the Lamb of God. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, as John the Baptist's testimony continues. When you found that passage, I would ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. We do that here at First Southern as a way of acknowledging that God is King and that His Word has absolute authority in our lives. We'll hear what the Apostle John has to write about John the Baptist. The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Church, this is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pause in this moment to acknowledge our own frailty of thinking. God, we, we acknowledge that we are in desperate need of Your Spirit who dwells in us as believers to speak to us, to teach us from the Word of God. This morning we ask that You would shine a bright, bright light on what it means that we have the Lamb of God slain for us. A sacrifice 
that makes us right, Father, with you. Teach us this morning. And Father, for those in our midst who are without Christ, give them light, understanding, and faith that they might become children of the living God this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it, it struck me this week that true hope, I mean true hope, must be rooted in something or someone who can actually deliver. Listen, if my hope is unfounded, it's really not hope at all. It is at best a wishful or even a whimsical dream. I, like any little boy back in the day, dreamed of being able to slam dunk a 10-foot goal. So you know how we did that, right? You just lowered the goal to five feet. You felt tall. As an eight-year-old, nine-year-old little boy playing football and donning the pads and putting on all the, the other pads around your knees and your arms, you dreamed of catching or perhaps throwing the Super Bowl winning touchdown, right? Those were the dreams. Those were, for me, totally unfounded. There was no hope I had upon which that would become likely reality in my life. But here's the deal. When, when, we, when our hope is anchored in someone who can actually deliver, then it's a genuine and it's a valid hope. This is exactly what John the Baptist does for his audience as he pronounces the Lamb of God has arrived on the scene. He's pointing to Jesus as the one who is able to provide the solution to mankind's great need. He's saying that Jesus is the one who will make a pathway to a different way of living. That's what he was declaring. Make Make straight the pathways. God incarnate has come. God has shown up to rescue His people. Here's the reality. Most of our neighbors, friends, co-workers, and even some of our family, they're placing their hope for a better life now and in eternity in their own ability. Their ability to be more kind. Their ability to be more gentle, more loving. They're placing their hope in their ability to be shrewd in the marketplace in order that they might gain financial means. They're placing their hope in their ability to repair broken relationships and pick up the pieces of damaged lifestyle that they've been living. Their hope, my friends, for fixing the mess in which they find themselves is rooted in their own ability. And at best, at very best, that's a whimsical dream. There's not one of us in our own strength, in our own power, who can make things right with God. Who can make things right with ourselves, make things right with the world around us. As Paul has said, we have all sinned. Every human being has sinned, missed the mark, and falling short of the glory of God. We must place our hope in someone who can deliver us. And that someone, as John the Baptist points out, is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for us. Well, in our passage, John the Baptist witnesses or, or speaks of what I think are three truths that will help us rethink Easter. 
The first one I want to point us to is his culminating statement in John chapter 1, verse 34. So let's go to the end of our passage and then we'll work our way backwards this morning. Verse 34, John writes about John the Baptist's statement and his testimony and says this, And I have seen and have borne witness that this, this one who is on the scene, this one that I am pointing toward, the one whom I said would come, this one is the Son of God. You Baptist is convinced that Jesus is the chosen one of God. Sent. The only one who could be sent to redeem His people. John's trying to convince his audience that Jesus is the only one that is worth putting our hope in. Why? Why is John the Baptist so confident? Why is he so certain that Jesus is the true Messiah, the Son of God come in flesh to give His life as a ransom for many? He answers that. He tells us why he is confident. Go back at verses 30 through 33. Let's start there in verse 30. He says this, This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Actually, that's a huge theological statement that that John the Baptist makes. In verse 30, he tells us, he tells his audience that Jesus is pre-existent. He is preeminent. He is before all. And He is eternal. He is God and He has always been God. That's That's what the Apostle John is arguing in chapter 1. He says, listen, he says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and He what? Dwelt among us. No one has seen the glory, but God has made His glory known in the one and the only Son, the unique Son, the only Son. So this, John the Baptist says, I'm confident because this is the pre-existent God who has made Himself known and come in flesh for us. And then in verse 31 he says, I myself, I did not know Him. Let me pause there. John the Baptist knew Jesus, right? He's a relative of Jesus. He, he did know Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus was Messiah. So listen, I myself did not know Him But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, John tells us he initially was uncertain who the Messiah was. But he came calling Israel to repentance in order that they might see and know who the true Messiah was. You see, God the Father gave John the Baptist a directive. Remember we said last week there were centuries, four centuries of silence. No prophet had been on the scene. That's why there's such a buzz in Jerusalem. That's why the Pharisees send the priests and the Levites out to Bethany beyond the Jordan there to find out, are you the Christ? Oh, you're not. Are you Elijah? Oh, you're not. Are you the long-awaited prophet? No, I am not. I'm the one who is crying out in the wilderness. I am crying out, make straight the pathways. He's quoting Isaiah and we're reminded of the beautiful words of comfort that indeed a Savior would come and rescue the people. 
And so John the Baptist appears on the scene, not knowing who the Messiah is, but knowing that his command from God the Father was to go baptizing, calling the people of Israel to repentance, warning the people of Israel that judgment would come if they did not believe in the God who would come in flesh. He says, so all I did was go and begin to preach and begin to baptize those who were believing. I baptized with water, but there is one who is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John said, I didn't know who the Messiah was. I just was obedient to the Father. And I began to preach and proclaim and baptize as I was instructed. Then in verse 32 and 33, John makes it clear when he became certain that Jesus was the anticipated Messiah. Look in verse 32 there. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. As we read the other Gospel accounts, that's, that, this occurs when John the Baptist is actually baptizing Jesus. It's in that moment. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John, this is how you're going to know. This is how you're going to know when the Spirit descends and remains, when there's an obvious symbol that this is my Son, my Messiah for my people, that's when you're going to know. You see, God through the Isaiah prophet made it clear that the Messiah would come in the power of the Spirit. We could go through to many places in Isaiah. Let me take you to three very rapidly. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's a Davidic king that will come who will be enthroned forever. That's what the prophet Isaiah is saying. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 42... Verse 1, Behold My servant, whom I uphold, My chosen, in whom My soul delights, I have put My Spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. If that's not enough, Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me, because the Lord has anointed Me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Listen, church, John knew these passages. He had read the prophets, likely memorized much. He knew these passages concerning the Spirit of the Lord remaining upon the Davidic King, upon the servant of the Lord, upon the coming prophet. He testifies that God the Father revealed to him that Jesus was the one of whom Isaiah spoke. So John testifies that Jesus is the pre-existent, preeminent Son of God, the needed Messiah upon whom God's people could confidently, confidently place 
their hope for a true and real eternal hope. Let's turn our attention to the last two truths that John the Baptist testifies to in our passage. Look back with me again in verse 29. You'll find them both laced there. Verse 29, the next day, so really here in the first few chapters, first two chapters of John, we have the first, basically first week of Jesus' ministry, certainly from the proclamation of John the Baptist that indeed the Messiah had come. And we cap that week off in John chapter 2 with the wedding at Canaan, the first miracle that Jesus does in a public format. So the next day, this is the second day, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're a believer this morning, you ought to shout right there. Right? Amen? Amen. We'll get to that second part. The fact that we have a Savior who has sacrificed to take away our own sin. John makes clear that in order for true, the true hope of eternal life to be provided and in order for the forgiveness of sins to be made available, then there had to be an acceptable sacrifice made. Never before had there been one who could give his life in death in order to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Never before. But Jesus, the Son of God, the chosen one of God, the very Lamb of God, He was the only one. The one and only unique Son of God. Here the Apostle John gives us a picture of Jesus as the Passover Lamb who was slain to redeem His people. What a beautiful imagery. The Lamb is slain. The blood is applied. And the people of God are saved and rescued and protected from death. That's what part of what John is saying here. And then, as we continue reading the Apostle John, we come to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, John gives us the image of Jesus as a warrior lamb who overcomes and is seated at the center and is the shepherd of His people. We begin reading John, the Apostle John, with Jesus as the lamb to be slaughtered. And then we find him in Revelation as the warrior lamb who has overcome and is gloriously victorious. Church, let me ask you, does that give you hope this morning? It does me. In the Gospel of John itself, if we just limit our reading there, Jesus is here portrayed as the Passover lamb, but by the time we get to John 10, the Passover lamb becomes the good shepherd. And we've said it before in this room, the reason He is the Good Shepherd is because He is willing and does lay down His life for the sheep. Five times the Apostle John states that the Good Shepherd lays down His life. That, my friends, is what makes Him our Good Shepherd. That He is the Passover Lamb, the Shepherd of the sheep who sacrifices that you and I might have life and forgiveness. The Old Testament sacrificial system 
was always intended to teach the people that they had a greater need for a Savior who would bring them forgiveness through His atoning sacrifice. We've said it many times, but the reality is when Jesus was slain in Jerusalem, that was the last Lamb slain ever, ever taken notice of by God Himself. That was the, that was the one sacrifice that mattered. And all the others, all of the Old Testament simply reminded the people year after year after year that they needed a Savior. And they needed true forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear. Chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the Passover lamb did. He took away our sin. He bore it on Himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Amen? Guys, don't get over that. This is our salvation story. This is where we are a part of the redemption story that God loved us in such a way. The definitive statement is this. There is no hope to satisfy mankind's greatest need apart from Jesus sacrificing His life to pay for our sin debt. Jesus had to die. He had to die. There is no Easter celebration without the morning of what we now call Good Friday. Unless He died, the Father is not satisfied. The wrath of the Father, the wrath of God is not satisfied without an atoning sacrifice. And so, Jesus is the only sacrifice that would ever accomplish our forgiveness and our salvation and the Father's satisfaction. Look back with me in verse 29 one last time. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Could you pause right there and put yourself right there in that sentence? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away Michael's sin. Who takes away Ben's sin. Who takes away Steve's sin. Who takes away Linda's sin. And for every child of God in this room, we could put our name right there in the sentence. Praise be to the Lord. It's He who has bore our sin. That we might have forgiveness, church. And we might have life. Real life in Him. Jesus, I've come that you might have life and you might have it, how? Abundantly. Overflowingly. Jesus' death was both necessary and fully effective. He died. Christ died for all who would believe. When John says that He died for the sins of the world, he is not saying that every person on earth is going to go to heaven. That's what we call universalism. We don't believe in that. 
The gospel is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Our Christian claim, our gospel proclamation, it sounds foolish. Matter of fact, it sounds intolerant and hatred to a world that doesn't understand the gospel. They say, surely there are more ways to heaven than one. Maybe there is a different way. We're all worshiping the same God. Oh, no, we're not. If your understanding of God does not include God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son who sacrificed His life for your life, to step in and bear your sin, it's not a true gospel. It's not good news at all. Because guess what? It's not going to take you anywhere. Certainly not to heaven. But it will take you to damnation to hell. And so these exclusive ideas that Christ is the only way, that it's only through Christ's sacrifice, it is offensive. The Gospel is offensive to the lost world around us in all truth. Not everyone goes to heaven. And we, like Paul, ought to be broken. You can't, you can't read through the book of Romans without seeing the heart of an apostle, an evangelist, a church planner, a missionary who wanted to see the nations, and particularly his own nation, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, he wanted to see them come to faith in Christ. At the beginning of Romans 9, he, he even says, listen, he says, may my soul, basically may my soul be damned in order that my brothers, my fellow countrymen, that they might know Christ. I wonder this morning, as we are rethinking Easter, and as we want to help our neighbors, co-workers, friends, family members rethink Easter, are we as broken of the lostness of their souls as Paul was over his fellow Hebrews? Are we that broken? God damn me that they might live. That, my friends, is brokenness over lostness. And here's the thing, church. We know who the Lamb of God is. We have experienced Him bearing our sins that we might have eternal life and eternal hope. Which means we have a deep responsibility. Not the whole world will be saved. So John is not saying here that every person on earth is going to be saved. It's not the case. Only those who trust Christ's work on the cross and believe in His resurrection will have eternal life. That's what John 3.16 states so simply. I've told some of you before, I was an eight-year-old little boy when I think I really heard John 3.16 at least, it seems like, for the very first time. I don't know the man's name who preached that short sermon that night to a bunch of, a room full of hot, smelly little kids at an Awana meeting. But I sure am thankful that he spoke of John 3.16, that God so loved the world. And I remember, I was sitting about dead center, and I remember him pointing 
I, I tell you, he was pointing right at me. That's what it felt like. And he said, even if you were the only one, Jesus would have died for you. Because of his love for you. I grabbed a hold of that truth that morning. Because I knew right then that Jesus had died for me. Because of his love for me. And that I would be made a part of his family. Is also what's written in John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The gospel is really simple. Paul, again, writes to the church at Rome. He says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And in John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he is not indeed saying that every person will go to heaven. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's telling us that those who believe and trust and place faith in Christ and His finished work on the cross will be saved and will have eternal life. The truth that Jesus' sacrifice was for all who would believe and not just for the Jews, that, my friends, would have been alarming. Alarming to John the Baptist's Jewish audience. They would have been caught off guard by that. You see, they perceived themselves and understood themselves as God's special chosen people. And for sure, that is right. That's what the Old Covenant is about. That's what the Old Testament storyline tells us, that God so kindly and graciously chose Abraham and his future family line and, and gave him a son, a one and only kind of son, Isaac through whom the line of Jesus would come. That the one and only true Son of God would come in flesh and sacrifice. But not only for the Jews, but for the nations. Oh, now Israel should have known. It wasn't like it was God saying, Oh, wait a minute, let me change my mind. I don't want to just hoard this love for the Jewish people. The, the sons and daughters of Abraham. No, I, I, I now want to give it away to the world. We don't get out of Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 12, before it's made clear that the one who would rise up and defeat the evil one, the one who would be the victor, would be the one who was a blessing to the nations. And so the gospel going to the nations started right there in the garden. It wasn't something new. The Jews should have known this. But their perception was the Messiah was for themselves. Some of them had misunderstood. So indeed, it would have been alarming to them. What is just as alarming to most of our neighbors is that there is one who actually sacrificed so that forgiveness is available to them if they believe. That's alarming. 
Their need, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, some of our family members, their need for such forgiveness is likely to be very hard for them to conceive. Why? Why? It's because of this. They are placing their hope in a whimsical dream. A dream that they had the ability to be more kind, to be more patient, more gentle, more merciful, more loving on their own. Their hope is rooted in their ability to make provisions for themselves and their family. Their hope is rooted in their ability, or at least perceived ability, to reconcile broken relationships and to put back together, reconstruct a decimated life as a result of poor living. Most of our neighbors, friends, co-workers, and some family members, most of them Most of them think they can save themselves. They think they don't need a Redeemer. They think they don't need an outside rescuer. Friends, they're blinded. As were you and I. We lived in the darkness, John says. But when the light came and shone, and when He made it clear to us and He enlightened our hearts and minds, regenerated our souls, granted us faith to understand and believe, we passed from death to life. And we acknowledged our need for a Savior, a Redeemer, one who sacrificed for us. Listen, not only do our neighbors need to rethink Easter, So do we. So do we. Every day, we as children of God, we need to rehearse this good news. We need to remind ourselves that we are a forgiven people. Every single day. We need to wake up and we need to think, behold, the Lamb of God in my life who has taken away the sins of of the world, and who took away my sin because of His sacrifice on the cross. Some of you are like me. Maybe it's at different phases in your walk with the Lord. But you beat yourself up over your sin. You try to even rescue yourself from your own sin. Out of sheer will and determination, I'm going to put that down. Became a child of God at age eight, best of my recollection. As a 17 year old, I began to walk more intimately with God. Began to desire His Word. Began to desire to be in deep Christian fellowship with others as a senior in high school. And in the ensuing few years of early college, began to recognize my own sinfulness in a variety of areas. My thoughts, some of my actions. Attitudes. And there were seasons, moments, weeks, days in the midst of that where I thought, man, how's God loved me? How can He possibly? This love as an eight year old boy that drew me to Him, 
How can, how can He really love me like that? Look at my life. Look at some of the choices. Oh, it looked good on the outside. It was polished up. Trust me. Most of us know how to polish it up, right? To look good on the outside. But on the inside, I thought, man, Lord, I'm rotten to the core, it feels like. How can you really love me? How, how can I be useful, Lord, to you? That was my desire. I want to be useful for my master for every good work that he might call me to. I said, man, I'm a wretched sinner. I can't put to death these simple habits. I remember coming across Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? There's none. And listen, He is faithful. John writes this in 1 John in his letter. He says there is that Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we'll confess our sin. Church, I want to beg you. You and I need to rethink Easter in light of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. His sacrifice that drew us into salvation is the very sacrifice that holds us in salvation. And it's the same gospel that brought us to faith. It's the same gospel that gives us energy and strength and truth. Every single day that we are the forgiven children of God. That is who we are. And it's all because the Lamb of God bore our sins. We needed and we need a solution for how we have wrecked our lives and how we've wrecked other people's lives through our own personal sin. We Needed and we need a Savior who has sacrificed for the forgiveness of those sins and made us right for the Father. And guess what? So do our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and indeed likely some of our family members. Are you this week on mission to help them rethink Easter? Let us be a church that vocalizes, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let that be the word that's on the tip of our tongue this week. Let's pray together. Father, We pause and thank You for Your love. Your love demonstrated in the coming of Christ. Your love demonstrated in the sacrifice of Christ. Your power demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. Father, I do this morning pray for those in our midst who do not know for sure that heaven is in their future. Would You move on their hearts even in this moment? Cause them today to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. May their faith be evident. May their repentance be clear. And may their conversion be obvious amongst us. And Father, for those of us who are already children of God, we thank You for the sacrifice. And may we 
share that with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.